Good morning, Cross Point. Good morning. Thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. And kids, you get to join us, so there's no releasing of the kids today. Hopefully you have a, a coloring page that will go along with the sermon to help you even focus. If you're anything like me, I like drawing and taking notes while I'm listening to help me listen. So hopefully that'll help you uh, this morning. It's so good being back, like second week in a row from the sabbatical, that I get to say good morning, Cross Point. It feels good. And, and last week, I said thank you to the congregation, but I forgot to mention how grateful I am for the elders who led through this time. Like, I am so grateful. It was such a relief to my own heart to be able to really step away to relax during the sabbatical, knowing that the church was in faithful hands with their effective leadership. So thankful for A.D. and Justin for, for preaching, for Anthony leading, and also for our elder candidate, uh, Gene Coleman, for, for leading during that time. I'm so incredibly grateful for them. And as many of you know, A.D. himself has, right after he preached his series on retreat, his father passed away. And then that's been something where he's been sick. He's been feeling that. And and A.D. wanted me to kind of read a statement from his family for you all this morning to kind of update on where he's at. He wrote that, on behalf of the Daisley family, we'd like to express our sincere gratitude to the Crosspoint family for your prayers, your concerns, and your condolences during this season of loss. As we continue to grieve, I, A.D., feel the need for additional space and time to process where I am and to tend to my heart in the midst of having to adjust to this new norm. For this reason, I'll be pausing and and pulling back from my responsibility of an elder for the time being. We appreciate your continued prayer during this time. In the meantime, please direct any ministry-related matters to the other members of the elder team. I want to be clear that that for A.D., this is a pause in his responsibility as an elder, not an end, with a, a continued presence here at Crosspoint. Like, you're going to see him, he's going to be worshiping with us. But it, it's, a, it's a time for him to step back from the ministry responsibility so that he can step into a season of healing and processing the significant loss in his life. And so I want to begin today by, by praying, praying for A.D. and his family in this time, and then also praying for us as we prepare to open God's Word this morning. So if you will, join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you for A.D., for, for Elena, for their girls, for their family, and Lord, his tender heart before you and, and for your people. Lord, I pray that in this time of of grieving and processing and the loss of, even as Anthony was talking about, like this patriarch in the family and the godly influence that a man can have on the family and then grieving that loss and stepping into this new norm, Lord, I pray that you would comfort him in this time. I pray that this space as he steps back so that he can step into just a deeper sense of your presence and your leading and your healing, Lord. I pray that you would speak, that you would lead, that you would guide, that you would comfort and encourage him in this season. 
Lord, help give us wisdom as a church family of, of how best to come alongside him in prayer, in support, in the same way that he has so graciously and given of himself to serve others, Lord, that we might serve him in this time. I pray that as we open your word this morning that you would help us to see the beauty of who you are. Lord, to bring our pain, to bring our hurts, to bring our longings and joys this morning and to pray, here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true through your word this morning. And in Jesus' name, amen. On Wednesday evening of this past week, I decided to completely change my mind on what I was going to be preaching for the next six weeks. See, before I'd left for my sabbatical, my, my coach was like, you should have the series planned out. And so I did. It was a six-week series looking at the parables of Jesus. I had them framed out. I had them picked out. I'd been studying them. By Wednesday, I was halfway through my sermon. Thursday's typically my writing day. But what happened is I was writing. I felt this tugging in my heart to like, maybe I need to go in a different direction. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That can't be the case because I already have my plan. Right? So I, I kind of forged ahead until Wednesday night, but like hours before I really sit down to write the bulk of the message. And I was talking to Kirsten at dinner, and I was like, my heart just isn't, I don't think the parables is where God has us right now. Like, do I just completely? And she's like, so what would you do? And I'm like, I don't know yet, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> so Wednesday night, I was like, let me change everything, scrap all the plans and reevaluate where God would have us. And if you remember last week, I, I kind of shared, and, and it's what I even prayed this morning, that where my heart has been is in this prayer, here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. And, and this was my heart throughout the sabbatical. And so I, I kind of had my plans going into the sabbatical. So just to kind of take a step back to understand where I'm at now is to understand where I was, that I had this understanding that I was going to sit down during my sabbatical and I wanted to be able to, on individual pieces of paper, write out every loss and grief and pain I've had in life and ministry over the last 25 years. I wanted to do this because my thought was that in one, if I could see these like listed out on individual pieces of paper, maybe that would justify some of my feelings, right? And then I thought like as I examined them, as I nuanced them, I didn't want them to be like this undercurrent that would trip me up. So maybe as I focused in on them, as I processed them, as I wrote out, why was this so painful? What about this hurt? That as I looked at it more closely, it would loosen its grip, and so that was my plan. It wasn't God's plan. That was my plan. So the morning I was going to start this process, God in his providence had uh, Kirsten and I both reading Psalm chapter 9. And verse 1 says this, I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare all your wonderful works. And so not thinking of any connection here, I started in my morning devotions and I was like, let me list out the wonderful works of God, what he has done in these past 25 years. And I began to write those down. And, 
And the more I wrote, the more that came to mind, to the point that like your hand starts to cramp from writing, and you're like, why am I choosing to write all these down when I could just think about it? But I continued to write them down. And something happened. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't intend for it to happen. But then when it came time for me to begin writing down my pains and the losses, they weren't there as strong. I felt as though the pain had been swallowed up somehow by the reality of who God is. The despair, the grief was replaced by the the beauty of God. Grief replaced by gratitude. And and it was strange because it wasn't like the, the, the pain was just ignored, nor was it pushed away and belittled. Rather, it was as if it was consumed, like eaten by the reality of who God is. And and later in in Psalm 9, it says, Those who know your name trust in you. Those who know the name of the Lord trust in him because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. And it was there as I reflected, where's my heart at now? What do I want to share now with you all? Not just as a placeholder, because in the fall we're going to be studying through Colossians, which I'm excited about, but now I believe God has us to look at who He is. We're going to be looking at the different names of God and and the situation surrounding those names, because a name in in the Bible, it's not just merely a a name, it's not just the name tag that that you wear to introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Steve. There's several others here that you'll meet by the same name, right? It's, It's different. In the Bible, when God reveals his name, he's revealing something about himself, his character, his attributes, his nature, his mission, his purpose, in order to to love him more deeply, trust him more fully. And so there's going to be three parts to each of these messages that I want us to see this pattern as we look at these different names of God. The first is I want us to see the doubts of man. There is a situation surrounding the proclamation of one of God's names. But there's also then the name of God. Because God is so magnificent, no, so incredible, so multifaceted. One name cannot simply capture all the attributes of who God is. And so he uses different names to help us understand different aspects of who he is. And so there's this situation in which the name is proclaimed, and that leaves the hearer, the person who is encountering and experiencing God like this, it leaves them transformed. Because of who God is. And that's what I want us to see this morning. So if you will, turn with me to the book of Exodus. We're going to be mainly in chapter 3. I want to kind of just give an, an idea. I want, you to, I want to describe the situation that you can read about maybe later this week in Exodus 1 and 2. To understand the situation. Before I tell you this name of God... I want you to understand the context in which it's spoken. The reason, because when we understand that, we're going to understand the attributes of God, 
in how his name speaks to those attributes in that situation. The people of God, when this name was spoken, were slaves in a country that was not their own. It says life was, was bitter. It was difficult. There was hard labor. The people of God were slaves in a country that was not their own. And to the point where a boy was born into slavery. And a warrant was on his head from the moment he was born. See, it was out of a local fear that nurses and midwives were instructed to kill the boys so that this people group would not grow in number. Mobile abortion clinics to lessen this growing ethnicity because of a local fear. In faith, the mom released the child into a river. This child ended up being adopted by the daughter of the very man who placed the sentence on his head for death. And so here's this boy, growing up as an outsider, inside the palace of the very culture to which he did not belong. It says he wasn't very well spoken. His tongue was, was sluggish. Sometimes what we can think of this as meaning he, he had a stutter. You know, you, you get excited and then you can't quite get the words out and so it repeats and repeats and repeats. Or maybe it means that, you know that, that feeling when the, there's a debate and everybody's talking really fast and, and, and your brain can't quite keep up and your mouth can't communicate what you're, what you're thinking and feeling and so you fall into silence only for hours or days later. You're like, you know what I should have said? That would have been great. Or maybe you think about the thought of being up here on a stage talking in front of people and then all of a sudden your heart starts to race and then it like moves up into your throat and then, then your brain, it doesn't quite work right. Like you can't get your thoughts, there's no linear process and, and you're afraid that you would freeze. This was that boy. Sluggish of tongue when it mattered most. But he wasn't blind. Maybe he couldn't speak as well as he wanted to, but he wasn't blind. As, as he grew up, he began to see that, that the people, the, the family that had adopted him, they were not his people. And he began to see his own ethnicity in this culture that, that is not their nation, that are being abused, that are being oppressed, that life is bitter. And he doesn't have the words to articulate. And he sees one of his fellow people being beaten by a guard. And without the words to communicate, he responds physically in anger. And he kills the man. Moses was his name. He kills a, an Egyptian guard. And he tries to hide him. And then... The very people he was trying to defend look at him and they're like, who are you? You're not one of us. His own people, his own ethnicity looks at him and says, you're not one of us. Who are you? Then his adopted family, his adopted grandfather tries to kill him. You killed an Egyptian man? So here he is. He runs. What else do you do? 
He fled to another country, a man with no identity, no country, no people, no family. He ran. He starts his own family and yet another place where he does not belong. He spent his days with sheep and with goats. Out in the wilderness, nobody else around, alone with his thoughts, alone with his past, alone with his feelings. Forty years. I just, I want you to pause to ponder this because sometimes we become so familiar with stories that we forget the humanity of the reality that they were in. A man without a people, without a home, an immigrant with no country to call his own, given up by his parents, rejected by his adopted family, wanted for dead, a man lost in the world. He took a man's life. Can you imagine the shame? It says he had a son. You know the conversation you have with the child when it's like, no, 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 you can't hit other children, right? We need to use our words. Do you feel it? Moses having to say that to his son? Use your words, sluggish of mouth. Don't use violence. The shame, his history, his failures when he tried to do the right thing and he made a mess out of everything. Rejected, a tongue-tied shepherd walking in the wilderness, figuratively and actually. Does any of that resonate? Like, is there something in the story that strikes you of like, I, there's a part of this story I feel. Maybe it's the lostness. Maybe it's the sense of unbelonging. Maybe it's the shame. The doubts. The rejection. Who am I? There's no place for me. It's in this context, into this man, that God would reveal his holiest of names. A name that you will find 6,800 times in the Old Testament. A name that, that is so holy to the Jewish people today that they will not even say it out loud. That it will not even be written in fullness. It's, it's put into just four simple letters that even today we don't even know exactly how to pronounce it. It was so holy. And it was to this man, in this context, that this name was revealed. A name that even in your English Bibles, when you read, you're going to see Lord with a capital L and lowercase o-r-d. You'll see God mentioned. But whenever these four letters are put together for this holiest name of God, you'll see it in all caps, L-O-R-D. That's how you know it's using this name of God. But before I tell you what it is, I want us to see that there's six attributes that God wants us to know that are contained in this name. Look with me beginning in verse 1. 
of chapter 3. I'm actually going to begin in the last verses of chapter 2. And starting in 23 of chapter 2. And after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The, the Israelites groaned because of the, their difficult labor. And they cried out in their cry for help because of the difficult labor that ascended to God. God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites and God knew Meanwhile, Moses, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. And Moses looked and saw that the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. And so Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Before there is a name, we see the attribute of God, that God is holy. He is holy. Imagine a bonfire, white, white hot flames licking up towards the sky. A child sees at the dancing flames and, and reaches out to take hold of one of them. Any loving parent would grab that child and pull them back, right, and say, be careful. Enjoy the light of the dancing fire. Feel its warmth on your face, but don't touch or you will get burned. God is like that fire, white hot with a perfect righteousness. Allow its light to illuminate your path. Allow the warmth of his presence to comfort you in the coldest and darkest of nights. But be careful because God is holy. He is not like you. He is perfect and you will be consumed if you draw too near. Remove your sandals. Can you imagine? Just Allow your mind to walk through this process. You see this bush on fire, not being consumed. You hear the voice of God call you by name, declare his holiness. You know the ground you are standing on is holy. And he says, take off your sandals. It was a sign of respect and humility. You walk in a bathroom, you walk down the street, you don't know what's on the bottom of your shoes. You are standing on holy ground. Remove your sandals. Think about also the vulnerability. This is God. There is now no barrier between my feet and his presence. And so I will show humility and I will show respect. There is nothing hidden though, nothing covered, nothing between you and God's presence. And he is holy. Look at verse 6. Then he continued, 
I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. That God is a God of belonging. A man with no nation of his own, rejected by his own ethnic people group, rejected by the people who had adopted him and drawn him in, rejected by all, seemingly without a home, without a nation, without a family. And then to hear the voice of God say, I am the God of your Father. That you come in a line, a place of belonging. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Knowing the story of Moses, how might these words have fallen on his heart? The condemnation, the accusations of who he is as a man in this world. And then to hear the voice of God say, I am the God of your father and I'm speaking to you. He's drawing him in that in the holiest name of God is also the most personal and intimate of names. That God would be a a relational being, as we'll see, has to be utterly staggering. And he is a God who sees and who hears. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings. I know about it. Do you see here, when, it, when, when God says, I have observed, it's not like, you know, I kind of saw out of the corner of my eye this thing happening, and, and that's not really good. It's not that kind of observation. In the original Hebrew language, it means that he looked closely, he examined, he saw, he was watching He knew what was going on. When it seemed like nobody else in the world saw or cared, God saw. He heard their cries, the groans at night. When you lay in bed, weeping after a long, hard day that nobody else knows what you've gone through. They don't know your story. They haven't walked in your shoes. They don't know the pain that you're carrying. And as it squeezes the tears out of you, it says, God sees He heard those cries. He was present. He sees your pain. He sees your tears. He hears the groans of your heart. He knows the situation you're in when it feels completely hidden. Your story is not hidden from God. Do you see these attributes being declared? I have observed the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out. Then in verse 8, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians, to bring them from the land to a good and spacious land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethazites, Amorites, Prezerites, Hivites, and Jebusites. 
So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And here it is. God not only sees, he not only hears, but he also moves to rescue and to restore. He isn't indifferent. This holy God who tells Moses, keep your distance, take off your sandals. The ground that you are standing simply by being in in my presence is holy ground. Moses doesn't even want to look his face. He's like hiding so he doesn't accidentally look at him. This is how holy and big God is. And it says, this God sees your pain, hears your cries, and he moves to rescue That God is on the the move. What you experience today will not be your reality tomorrow because God is about to intervene. And I will bring them to a good and spacious land. There is restoration from slavery to freedom, from bitter oppression to sweet abundance. God is on the move. And then you would think, If you heard this, how would you respond? Like, here's God, who he is. We see these attributes of himself described, four attributes declaring who he is. And he's like, I'm going to send you. And you would think it'd be like, okay, let's go. That's not how Moses responds. And I want you to see something very important that's going to happen here. Because in verse 11, but Moses asked God, who am I? Who am I that that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? All Moses can see is his past story. All he can see is his shame, his failures, his inability. I call God, you may be great, but man, you don't know me. My tongue is like a stone. I failed. I've murdered a man. Me? Who am I? Can you imagine the the echo, this question that has echoed in Moses' heart for 40 years that has now sunk down into every crevice of his soul? Who are you, Moses, that his own people accused him of? Who are you? And it's the question that comes out, who am I? These truths must be for someone else. Because they can't be for me. You don't know my story, my history, my brokenness. All Moses can see is himself. And so God responds in verse 12. I will certainly be with you. This will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. 
God doesn't say, Moses, you have this. I'm going to give you a tongue that can speak. Moses, you're a great man. Moses, you were created for a time such as this. Moses, you can do this. He doesn't build Moses up in a a false idea of self-improvement. What God says is, look at who I am and I will be with you. I am sending you. Your hope, your trust isn't in who you are or how great you can speak or what you can do, what you have done or what you will do. You are placing your faith in me and I will be with you. And then how can you fail? If this God who is holy, who is on the move, who who gives us belonging says, I will be with you. What I want you to see is then the question that Moses asked completely changes. The question moves from, from who am I? Who am I that I should go, that I should lead the people of nation? And then God declares that he is a God who is, who is present, who is with them. When he says, I will be with you, now his question changes. And he asks, okay, who are you? We can either ask, who am I, or who are you? Then Moses asked, if, if I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? What name should I tell them? Who is sending me? Rather than, who am I, who are you? And God answers. And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. I am has sent you. The God who is. There is something something deeply, deeply personal in this question. For it to move from who am I to, to who are you? What do I tell them? Who is it that's sending me? Tell me who you are. This isn't some abstract higher power. This isn't some spiritual force in the world. This God is a person. Not a human like you and me. But there was a personhood to God. A relational being who is self-aware with a mind, emotion, and will. A person that can be known a person with whom we can have a relationship. And he says, what's your name? And God answers, Yahweh. I am. It comes from the the Hebrew verb to be. I am who I am. When they ask who sent me, you tell them Yahweh sent me. That is my name because God is self-existent and therefore dependent on no one and nothing for his existence. He is. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is unchanging, the, the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. He is for all eternity. 
He is the holy God. And here we see the name of God uttered that will be spoken and and written down 6,800 times as the most holy name of God. That he is a holy God. He is a God of belonging. He is a God who sees and hears your pain. He is a God who moves to rescue and restore. He is a God who is present with you. He is a God who is. This is who our God is. This is how he declares himself. And because of the reality of who God is, and because this God went with a man with a, with a storied past, with self-doubt and shame, this man, Moses, would stand before the most powerful man in the world and declare, set my people free. And God would perform miraculous works would lead and guide, guide. He would speak the law of God to this man. God would use him to write the Pentateuch, what we know as the first five books of the Bible, written by this man. He transformed him, imperfect, would use him to defeat nations, to lead a nation to God. So let me ask you this. This is what I want you to consider yourself. The next time you feel alone, you feel overwhelmed, you stand beside yourself with that critical spirit pointing out every condemnation and fault that you can see. The next time you want to list out every hurt and pain that you've experienced in nuanced detail. The next time you feel lost, frail, shame, rejection. You have the choice to ask yourself one of two questions. The first is this. Who am I? You can look at yourself in introspective detail, taking a microscope to every pain and failure. Or, instead of asking who am I, we can say, God, show me who you are. Do you see the difference? When Moses said, what's your name? This is why I'm preaching this series, because I believe that as we have a bigger view of who God is in reality, it will swallow up our hurts and our pains and our failures, and it will leave us transformed, not because we're such great people, but because we serve such a great God. And sometimes we need to get our eyes off of ourselves and stop looking in a mirror and to behold God in his holiness, and in who he is, and be transformed by that. So the next time that the lies and those emotions start to crush in around you, which question will you ask? Who am I? Or who are you, God, in this situation? Let's pray.